This morning we continue our sermon series for July, The Minor Prophets, Who Cares? And we are looking at a few of the minor prophets and what exactly it is that they cared about. We've been playing off the double meaning of this phrase of who cares, because it can mean who cares as in it really doesn't matter, as we kind of see in the video, no one shows up to hear the preachers, or it can mean a person who's passionate about something. And that's what we've been focusing on in this series, is trying to focus on what is it that the minor prophets cared about? What is it that they were passionate about? And then in turn, why do we care about the minor prophets? Well, the first week we looked at the life of Haggai, who cared about rebuilding the temple. The next week we took uh, turned to Habakkuk, who cared about keeping watch for what God was going to do next and living by faith. And then last week we studied the prophet Micah, and our mission partner, Remember New, was here, and we looked at what Micah cared about, injustice and mercy. Now this week, we turn our attention to the prophet Malachi. Malachi is the last of the Old Testament prophets. So the easiest way to find this book of the Bible is to turn to the Gospels, if you can find those, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They make up a significant portion at the beginning of the New Testament. And then just flip backwards until you get to Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament right before Matthew. But I want to give you a little bit more of a backstory into what is happening during the time of the Minor Prophets. Now, last week, Pastor Chuck talked about the two kingdoms. There's the southern kingdom and the northern kingdoms of Israel. He talked about Micah, who was a prophet around 720 B.C., and he saw the fall of the northern kingdom to Assyria. The week before that, we talked about Habakkuk, who came about, six, uh, about 120 years later after Micah and saw the fall of the southern kingdom to Babylon. And then the first week, Pastor Chuck talked about Haggai, who cared about rebuilding the temple after the Israelites returned from exile to Babylon that God told uh, Habakkuk about in the uh, 500 B.C. So if you can follow all that, hopefully this timeline helps you a little bit, uh, we can see that uh, it all leads up to where we're at today. And the Israelites returned to Babylon around 530, or returned from Babylon, excuse me, around 530 B.C. And they had worked hard to restore the land and to rebuild the temple. And yet a hundred years later, we come to the time of the prophet Malachi. But in Malachi's time, it seems that the Israelites have lost some of their energy, some of their vigor. They've returned from exile. They've rebuilt the temple. And yet they've begun to once again fall into patterns of sinfulness. And we'll look at those in just a few minutes. But Malachi's book is interesting in how it's structured because each section begins with God making some sort of claim against Israel. And each claim is then followed up in a defensive tone by the Israelites saying, well, how have we done that? Or what do you mean we're doing that? And then again, the Lord responds to this rebuttal from the Israelites with his answer of how they are doing those things because they feel as though God has just simply ignored them. 
They're looking around at these other nations and they feel that they're more prosperous than they are. And they're wondering, if we're doing all these things, why are we not prosperous? We know what the other prophets have spoken of, this glorious future, yet here in the Persian Empire, we're a small and inferior province. Now, Malachi often speaks of this coming day, the day of the Lord. And this phrase, the day of the Lord, refers to periods of time in which God personally intervenes in history in order to accomplish his purposes in the world. And another aspect of Malachi that is significant is its position within the canon of Scripture. Because Malachi, as the last Old Testament prophet and the last book of the Old Testament, comes and God speaks through him, and then there's this 400-year gap between him and the time of the Gospels. And so we're going to dive into our scripture for this morning from Malachi. Our scripture reader for this morning is Kara Reuter. So Kara, go ahead and make your way to the podium. If you are able, please stand and face the center of the room. We read from the center of the room to remind us that scripture is to be central in our lives, and we stand because we believe that this is indeed the authoritative word of God. So Kara, whenever you are ready, please go ahead and read Malachi 3.13 through 4.6. You have spoken arrogantly against me, says the Lord. Yet you ask, what have we said against you? You have said, it is futile to serve the God. What do we gain by carrying out his requirements and going out like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly, evildoers prosper, and even when they put God to the test, they get away with it. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. On the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty, they will be my treasured possession. I will spare them, just as the Father has compassion and spares his Son who serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And the day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or branch will be left to them. But for you who revere my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healings in its rays. And you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. Then you will trample on the wicked. They will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. Thank you, Kara. You may all be seated. Is it worth it? It's a question most of us ask ourselves all the time. Is it worth it? It's an economic question that's subject to the individual. Is that extra slice of pizza worth the heartburn that I'll have later? If I have some Tums, the answer is probably yes. 
But it's a question that we ask ourselves every time we make a decision. Last week, Pastor Chuck talked about what it is that we value. And the prophet Micah pointed out to the Israelites that they were not valuing what God values. And the problem is that when everyone goes about putting their own desires above what God desires, we end up with injustice, corruption, and idolatry. Now Malachi is specifically addressing the Israelites' worship because they are simply going through the motions in their worship. It is empty and hopeless in its form. As I mentioned earlier, the book of Malachi begins with this call and response of God and the Israelites. And the first thing that the Lord says is, I have loved you. To which the Israelites retort, how have you loved us? And the book of Malachi then proceeds to explain the different ways that the Israelites have gone on to break covenant with God. And it begins first with their sacrifices. God has given the Israelites his law, and part of that law is the ceremonial law. When the Israelites made sacrifices to God, they were to offer unblemished animals. They were to offer clean animals on the altar. Yet here they were offering their blind and their lame animals. And the priests were simply allowing it. They weren't turning them down. So God says, why are you disrespecting my name? You are defiling my altar by not offering clean animals. A contextual example to maybe compare this to would be that of goodwill. People go to goodwill with stuff that they're looking to get rid of. It's a charitable act, a good thing to do. Uh, We have a box that we have at home where we throw old clothes or uh, things we don't use anymore. We throw it in this box, and it seems to be a good thing to do. However, there was an article released recently that surveyed one region of 30 Goodwill stores. And that one region hauled off 13 million pounds of waste in one year. That is the equivalent of 433 garbage trucks of essentially other people's garbage. Now, don't get me wrong, some of that's probably well-intended, right? And it's just stuff that Goodwill maybe couldn't take for their own reasons. But nonetheless, it's stuff that people no longer found use for. But other times, maybe it's stuff that people didn't even think about it, and they just threw it in there, even if it was broken, just wanted to get it out of the house. And what seems like a charitable act can become costly, and it costs this region over $1 million to discard of this waste. The point is that the Israelites were going through the motions. They were not giving of their best but just giving God whatever was left over. And we have to be careful in what we are called to do and that we are giving God our best, that we are caring properly for the poor and the needy, for those who suffer injustice. And so just as the Israelites were not faithful in their sacrifices, they were not being faithful in their marriages either, or in their tithing, or in how they were carrying out justice. 
And Malachi addresses each of these in his prophecy. But our passage for today focuses on the final question. The question of, is it worth it to serve God? As I mentioned at the beginning, this is an economic question. It's a transactional question because so often we think in transactional terms. That's how our world works. However, that's not how God operates. Now, this doesn't nullify the question that's at hand or whether or not it's worth it to serve God. But it does cause us to redirect and rethink about that question and to think of it in a different light. And we'll get to that in just a moment. But this morning's text begins with this last exchange between God and Israel. And God says, you have spoken arrogantly against me. Yet they reply, what have we said against you? And God responds, you said it is futile to serve God. You said, what do we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we call the arrogant blessed and certainly evildoers are prospering. And even when they put God to the test, they're getting away with it. The Israelites are looking around and they're seeing the wickedness of these other nations and yet nothing's happening to them. In fact, they seem to be prospering while the Israelites aren't. So they're starting to wonder, what's the point? What's the point of our worship? We've been following all these requirements since we've returned to Babylon, but yet God doesn't seem to be delivering on his promises. And one of the things we've talked about before is this idea of fearing the Lord. And the Israelites are no longer fearing the Lord. In this sense, fearing the Lord is to stand in awe of his power. Those who feared him revered his name. They honored his name. But the Israelites, no longer fearing him, didn't respect him, didn't honor him. And if you look with me at chapter 3, verses 16 through 18, God now speaks again of that day, the day of the Lord. And he says, on that day, I will act. And those who fear me, they will be my treasured possession and I will spare them. Just as a father has compassion and spares his son who serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. God points out two groups, the wicked and the righteous. And the results for these two groups on that day will be polar opposites. And chapter 4 makes this distinction. It says, Surely the day is coming, the day of the Lord, and it will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble, and the day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a branch or a root will be left to them. But for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays, and you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. Then you will trample on the wicked. They will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty. Now those back in verse 14 who declare that it is futile to serve God had lost sight of this coming day 
of the day of the Lord. And rather, they were focused on the here and now and on themselves. They looked at those in Babylon, those in Persia, those in Assyria, and they looked at and saw the prosperity, the luxury with which they were living, and they thought, we deserve that. We've been going through this for a hundred years now since we've been back. We've been following the rules. We deserve that. See, they've been going through the motions of serving, of worshiping, of tithing, but only out of a sense of obligation. Only with the belief that if I give of my money, if I give of my time, surely then God will give me more. Because look what I've done. Yet for this group in Jerusalem, that's not what's happening. So they start to believe that it's futile to serve God. It's futile to invest in their worship. Maybe a little bit like this. Check this commercial out. Futile, right? You ever been there? For some of us, DIY projects don't work. They're simply not worth the time because we don't get the reward. Instead, we just get frustrated and throw the fan through the window. The Israelites feel like they've put in the work, but they're not reaping the rewards. They're in this place of frustration where the Israelites who, they, they're starting to just believe it's futile to serve God. But God tells them what will happen. While this passage speaks to the demise of those who think it's futile to serve God, it's not all doom and gloom. In fact, it's much more than that. Because Malachi's prophecy concludes with God once again proving his covenantal faithfulness to Israel. For you who revere my name the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays, and you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. Those who revere the name of God are often referred to in Scripture as the faithful remnant. The faithful remnant are those who recognize that in the presence of sin, what is satisfying here and now is almost always temporary. But the goodness and delight of God is everlasting. God speaks of this day that is coming, of this day that is great and dreadful. Great for some, dreadful for others. And we see this being referred to time and time again in Malachi's prophecy. And Malachi, as he's anticipating the day of the Lord, is also anticipating the coming of a messenger. In Malachi, this prophet is named Elijah. It's a reference to the Old Testament prophet Elijah, who came before Elisha. And if we go to the New Testament, we can see that John the Baptist, then, is this prophet who is sent to prepare the way of the Lord's coming. 
Jesus says so himself. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 14, he says, He is the Elijah who was to come. And Jesus then also directly quotes Malachi saying, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare the way before you. So Malachi is prophesying about the coming of Jesus and how God is going to fulfill his covenantal promises to Israel. And now Jesus gives us, you and me, what Malachi cared about for his people. And that is a truly living hope. A living hope. There's a story in John chapter 3, and it's the story of Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a Pharisee, and the Pharisees during the time of Jesus were somewhat like the Israelites in Malachi's time. They thought they were doing the right things. They were following all the rules, and that by doing so, God would reward them. Now, most of the Pharisees did not like Jesus. But Nicodemus knew that there was something different about him. And so in the cover of darkness, Nicodemus goes to find Jesus and ask him some questions. Jesus tells him, you must be born again. You must believe that I am the one God has sent into the world. But unfortunately, Nicodemus does not come to this understanding. And John concludes that story with these familiar words. He said, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. That whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Therefore, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that, they, so that it may be seen plainly what they have done, and what they have done will be seen in the sight of God. Jesus is the light. Jesus is the son of righteousness. Do you see how Malachi and John both make this connection? Nicodemus is trying to understand what he must do to be saved. Jesus tells him, he must be born again. He says, you must believe in me and watch for what God is doing through me. The Israelites that Malachi is addressing were simply going through the motions. They didn't truly believe. But Malachi says it is the faithful remnant that will come into the light that will receive eternal life, on whom healing will be given from the Son of Righteousness. Because serving God is worth it. Because belonging to God is not dependent on what you have done, 
but on what you have already received in Christ. And I don't want us to miss this, church, that if we look at verses 17 in chapter 3 and then at the very last verse from our passage, verse 6 from chapter 4, God says, they will be my treasured possession. I will spare them just as a father has compassion and spares his son who serves him. In verse 6, he will turn, his, turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of children to their parents. A father spares his son who serves him. That son is rewarded for what he has done. But you see, God calls us his treasured possession. And in John chapter 3, we see something completely different. He doesn't talk about a father sparing his son. Instead, he speaks of a father who loves his treasured possession so much that he would give of his son. That he would give up his son, the one who perfect, did serve him perfectly. That he would give up that son to death on a cross. Before we could ever serve him in order that we might be saved. You see, God gave of himself to us whom he calls his children in order that we might then turn our hearts back to him. Jesus is the unblemished sacrifice. Do you see how this redirects the question of is it worth it to serve God? That instead of thinking, what am I going to get out of this? That first we must think, what have I already received? Serving then comes from a place of living hope in the promises of what we have already received and gratitude for what has been freely given the body and blood of Christ. It is hard to look past the here and now, but we must cling to what we have already received in Christ's sacrifice. Serving in faith and holding fast to the hope that Malachi encourages us to have because we know that God is always faithful to his promises. Let's pray. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are an awesome God, a powerful, faithful, and loving God. And you have loved us so much that you did not spare your Son. Rather, you placed on him the burden of our sins, that he is the unblemished sacrifice that atones for the sins of the world once and for all. Through him, you have made it possible for us to turn our hearts back to you. And so we give thanks to you, God the Father, that our, that our Savior, Jesus Christ, before he suffered, gave us this memorial of his sacrifice that we're about to celebrate until he comes again. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. At this time, receive this parting blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. And may he lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace, now and forevermore. Amen.